You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome back to episode five of the Broadway Teachers Podcast. Hi, Gordon. Hey, Pam. I'm so excited for this episode because anyone who knows me knows that ever since I was a little kid, I've been an Anglophile and really looked at British theater as the pinnacle of achievement. Um, When I finally directed uh, a show in the West End, I felt like I was stepping into a movie of my life. I, I, I just walking through the streets and um, walking the same hallowed grounds as uh, all of the people that I idolized. So when I heard that Dame Diana Rigg was coming to New York uh, to perform in My Fair Lady at Lincoln Center, I made a beeline for her, uh, not physically, but um, <laughs> through mass communication. Um, and I, I found her and she was generous and uh, uh, and body and honest and everything I could have hoped for. Um, I am so excited for you to hear some of her <laughs> very refreshing takes on her career from the Avengers all the way to now um, and just the changes that have happened uh, in the industry and in the world. Um, of course, she, she uh, uh, passed away last year, um, and so I feel even more uh, grac- uh, gratified um, and grateful um, to uh, have this record of her life. Um, enjoy. The following was recorded live at the Broadway Teachers Workshop, an annual program that brings theater teachers together with the Broadway community for behind-the-scenes classes, workshops, intimate discussions, and Broadway shows in New York City and online. Learn more at www.broadwayteachinggroup.com. Diana Riggs. lot lovely to be here <laughs> so um, I'm just gonna start um, and I know some of these answers already because we were chatting back there but can we just talk about um, where you are from and what life was like growing up in Yorkshire um, I was yeah I was uh, I was born in Doncaster which is not a very glamorous place to be born in um, it's a mining town in Yorkshire but my father was an engineer And he wanted to get out of the confines of a very restricted life. He answered an advertisement in the Times for an engineer to go to India. And this was God knows how many years ago. 
And it said only public school boys need apply. No, uh, yeah, only boys who've been to public school need apply. And he thought he... And public school in England equals private school here. Yeah. And he um, he was... A, a, what do they call it? Oh, yeah, he was an apprentice to the man who uh, designed a very uh, famous engine uh, called the Mallard. And he, my dad took no notice of the fact that he hadn't been to a public school. He, he saved his money. He traveled to London. He met an envoy. In those days, in India, the Maharajas were all powerful. They built the roads, the railroads, the, the, the canals, the lighting system, everything. And he met an envoy from the Maharaja of Bikaneer with his letter from this designer of the Mallard. And my dad went out there at a very young age um, to build railways in India. And anybody who's been to India now knows that the railways crisscross India. They were a vital part of traveling around India. And my brother and I went back some years later, and it was like royalty. We arrived in a train and the train shunted slowly into the station at Bikaneer, and it was like being the queen, because when she arrives at a station, the door that she's standing at arrives exactly within sort of three or four inches of the red carpet, which our train did, and there was the red carpet for my brother and I to step out on to. We were given garlands round our necks, um, the town band was there. The, uh, hundreds of people were there. We had no notion that we were going to get this wonderful welcome. And somebody stepped forward and wrote a poem that he had written in honor of my father, saying, because my father had founded a foundry there for mending engines in Bikaneer, he had put food into the mouths of generations of mothers and their children. <laughs> so beautiful. So I'm curious, what was school like in India? Uh, it was peculiar. Um, there were no <laughs> schools for girls. Um, you went to a convent. I went to a convent uh, where uh, they were ill-prepared to teach you. And I, all I can remember is um, they taught me how to lace up my shoes and to how they had a frame with buttons and buttonholes, and they taught me how to button, which actually probably was quite useful. <laughs> My brother, at a very early age, uh, went to a boarding school in the hills, which is where we used to go for the hot season. And it was a two-day train journey. And he was, went there with his... Um, my mother took him there. Uh, he went there for months on end without seeing my, either me, my mother, or, or his mother or father um, until we went up for the hot season. It was, it was really quite tough for children in those days. On the other hand, it was also very dangerous because when my brother and I went back, the, the, the cemeteries were filled with uh, little graves of the, of the children that had died from oh, all sorts of diseases, cholera. Uh, um, what does it get from mosquitoes? Um, malaria. Malaria. Uh, um, dysentery. 
Uh, and so it was amazing that, you know, that early on, like 70-odd uh, years ago, uh, my mother managed to raise two kids, and we never had an illness that I remember. That's amazing. So how old were you when you went back to England? Seven. And uh, I was taken back to England by my mother. My father stayed in India, and I was put into boarding school. And I, I remember the first day I was there, I walked into this room. I'd never seen so many white girls <laughs> under one roof before in my life. And I was rather rebellious because I, 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 I was so ill-equipped for school and for discipline and for anything. And I remember um, they gave me some porridge to eat. Well, this, you know, after you've eaten food in India, which is, oh, we didn't have curry all the time, but we did quite a lot, and it was spicy and delicious, and porridge is bleh. <laughs> so I refused to eat my porridge, and they made me sit in front of my porridge all day. And, and then... I finally got the spoon, and I and I, and I dipped it up, <laughs> and it sat there for the rest of my days in school, <laughs> getting brown and cracked on the wall. As a like, reminder of your rebelliousness. Yes. So, would you say that was your first creative moment? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Did you do any theatre at school? No, but what we did do was dance. Isadora Duncan danced. Do you know whom I mean by Isadora? You would, wouldn't you? <laughs> and it's all self-expression. Absolutely divine. Uh, yes, we were given little tunics, and, uh, and so we pranced. Nobody told us to, uh, how to do it. We were just allowed to respond to the music. Interesting. So there was no disciplined uh, uh, structure to the classes. There wasn't ballet per se. Oh, God, no, 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 no. This was just, it was teacher, I think, having a fag round the corner. She. That means cigarette. That means cigarette. <laughs> I speak well... English. <laughs> Anyway, she was, <laughs> she was taking a break. <laughs> she, <laughs> she just put the music on, you know, and went, went, went around the corner to relax and said, you know, get on with it. Nobody told us what to do. <laughs> so when, when did it first occur to you that you might want to act? <laughs> um, I, I was, it was about 11. I was about 11 and I loved words. I loved poetry. Um, and uh, uh, th that lit the fire, lit the flame. And it is a flame, and it is a fire, because it, it's passion, isn't it? I'm, I feel passionate about it. Did you do any, any performing locally when you were a kid? I, I did. Oh, there were school plays. We did one play, I do remember, um, which was called Wild Decembers. You can imagine, not very good. Um, <laughs> Uh, and it was about the Brontes, the Brontes sisters. And I played Emily outrageously because, of course, I'd, I'd read that they all died of, of uh, um, um, the lung disease. Tuberculosis, tuberculosis or consumption? 
cue for coughing. I coughed all the way through the performance. Everybody else didn't get a chance. Just full on Camille. Yeah, but interestingly enough, my instincts must have been sort of quite, because I knew nothing. I hadn't seen any theatre. I'd seen pantomime, but not not straight theatre. Um, and I asked my fa- we lived in Yorkshire, and we lived quite close to Haworth, ha- which is where they were brought up. And I asked my father to take me there because I wanted to research, which, which when I think back, was really quite sort of imaginative of me. Um, and I do know that I had a very strong imagination. I mean, this is something that I have in London worked with children not in drama, but um, uh, immigrant children, teaching them how to read and to speak English. And it's, it's the imagination in children which you are dealing with, which I think is sacred. It is wonderful. And um, I had this imagination, and have always had this imagination, thank God. Um, so... For example, I can be sitting next to the world's most boring man at dinner and I'm a thousand miles away. Um, Are you here now? (laughs) I'm here now. Um, But uh, Winston Churchill has a wonderful phrase about that whenever he had encountered anything that was terribly boring he said I lend myself to the occasion (laughs) and that's what I do so when you were doing this play and and coughing up a storm and probably stealing focus from the other actors not probably definitely (laughs) (laughs) um was that a turn-on was that exciting of course it was it was wonderful (laughs) covered in green powder I seem to remember because I was extremely robust 11-year-old or 12-year-old, you know, and they tried to make me look ill. (laughs) Do you think, you mentioned pantos. Um, How many of you guys have been to a pantomime in England? They're sort of very broad uh, holiday shows where the audience participates by yelling back at the stage things like, he's right behind you, and things like that. Um, But it always occurred to me that because you, from a young age, go to the theater and understand that you're a participant, the arts become almost more vital and more um, uh, knowable to your average English person. It's, it's not a highfalutin art no, form. No, no, it isn't. And it, is, it remains expensive, of course, so um, not a lot of people go there or can afford to go there unless uh, um, it's subsidized. And do you think that pantos um, in any way seed the population um, for an appreciation for the arts? Uh, well, I suppose, yeah, yeah. But it, I, it's, it's sort of kind of separate to the main thrust of theatre. Uh, it's it's, it's it, once a year at Christmas. So it's not a, it's not a constant rhythm in, in life. It just feels like a good gateway drug. Yes, it is for children. Yes, yeah. yes. And then what was your first... Uh, or how did you transition from school? I should I should first say, how did you decide to study theater after high school? I had a teacher, most of us do, uh, teachers that lead us. 
I had a teacher, and <clears throat> she was called an elocution teacher, but that's supposedly to making you, helping you to speak properly, but she, she did poetry with me. And she said to my parents, she thought that I should try for RADA. Um, now... RADA is like Juilliard, Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Yeah, um, you, you just, you really have to believe me when I tell you that in those days, actors and actresses didn't have the gravitas that they have today for the most part, certainly not in the Yorkshire that I was living in um, at the age of 15, 16, which is when I did my audition for RADA. You were tantamount to being a bit of a tart, frankly. Um, You know, (laughs) loose with the morals and uh, a lot of makeup and and frightfully um, over the top is what we say. And, And so when I said to my parents I wanted to be an actress, they they were a bit taken aback, you know, and I, my last term at school, went into the headmistress, as one did, and she asked us what we wanted to be. Most of them said they wanted to be secretaries or nurses. And I said I wanted to be an actress, and she paled. I mean, she had no words of encouragement for me <laughs> at all. So off I went to RADA, um, what was that audition like? Do you remember? Oh, yes, I do remember. Yeah, it was a lot of very serious people <laughs> at, the, at the end of a room, and you had to sort of walk towards them, and you had to do two pieces. You had to do Shakespeare and, and a modern piece. Um, I think I did Five Fire Unknit That Threatening Unkind Brow from Catherine. I never got to play Catherine, ever which is one of the great tragedies of my life, because I'd love to do it. Anyway, I did that. I can't remember what I did for a modern. Anyway, that was it. Um, and that was it, and then you got in. And I got in. That's yes. pretty great. But I didn't know what I was getting into. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, what, what, what did you uh, find when you got to London? Well, um, I think I can speak about it better in retrospect, in the sense that uh, we had uh, we had a gentleman to teach us fencing, we had a lady to teach us voice, uh, we had movement, uh, we had verse speaking by a darling little old lady called Nell Carter, um, who was <laughs> well into her retirement years. The teachers weren't particularly inspirational. They were not, I have to be honest. Um, Some of them were ex-actors. One was an ex-actor teaching us technique. Um, Peter Peter Bach was, he was called, and he was brilliant. But then he was still acting. And um, yeah, and in those days, it was also used by people with money as a sort of finishing school. Um, that they weren't going to ever do anything. They were going to um, do the debutante season and then marry Mr. Wright, who had an estate somewhere. So it, it wasn't the most serious drama school. And it's interesting because now it certainly is. To yeah. say you went to RADA is very, very high honor. Did you feel like they were polishing rough edges off of people? 
Yeah, they had to do that. I mean, Albert Finney was there at the time, and the big joke is um, he had a Yorkshire accent. And um, as he left RADA, he said, oh, thank you very much. It's been lovely. <laughs> and the teacher said, not at all. It was lovely for me too, dear. <laughs> so they all were secretly from, from Yorkshire. <laughs> no, he turned her. Oh, he turned her. <laughs> Um, and it, it, to what extent do you think that has remained the same? Because now there's, at least in acting schools here, there's a greater premium on mining your truest self. So if you're from Yorkshire, they would kind of hone and make that the best Yorkshire. But you see, you mustn't ask me questions to get me irritated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it. Let's hear it. <laughs> Is it? Uh... It's like this. Um, a friend of mine came to me and, and she said, "I've just, I've just done a rehearsal." She was, she was going to do as you like it. I just, she was playing Ros Rosalind. I've just done a rehearsal with my Celia. She said, "Do you mind if I play everything out front because I'm dyslexic?" <laughs> That's got to get a laugh, boys and girls. <laughs> <laughs> so. Are you, are you saying that you... I don't care. Okay. <laughs> what your private problem is, your problem is to work with what you've got on the page and get it right. And <laughs> There's a lovely word called subsume. Subsume yourself. Oh, interestingly enough, <laughs> I, I, I warned him, I'm in my anecdotage, right? <laughs> I have an anecdote for every question. <laughs> Feel free to leave. <laughs> but this springs to mind, and here is a major... You'll hear quite a lot of name-dropping, by the way, this Please, afternoon. Please, we welcome this is it. my first major name-drop, right? Um, <clears throat> I was invited to Harvard for a ceremony which was honouring Arthur Miller, and we were both there very early, and... Um, you never know what to do. So I suggested we went and had a drink. Uh, of course. <laughs> and uh, so I had the very great privilege of, of, of talking you know, to him one-to-one. -one. And, um, and he's not a man of many words, you know, so, so it was up to me to, 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 to keep the conversation going. And, and I, asked, I asked him a series of questions, one of which was, I said, you know, over the years from the first performance to what you see now, it must be absolutely fascinating to have remarked upon all the changes that have taken place in attitude and, and you know, social uh, uh, situations. And what is the greatest change that has taken place with actors playing your roles between when they were first played and now? And there was a bit of a pause, and he gave me a one-word answer, which was personality. And I knew exactly what he meant, that they were bringing their own personality to the part, and subsumation was not taking place. In other words, they'd forgotten to serve. Actors are here on the stage to serve. 
the play, the director, and the audience. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I like that attitude. That's great. Um, that's It's interesting because I, uh, there's uh, definitely a school of thought um, that the actors um, are participants in the creation, particularly of a new play. Um, I think they might well be, uh, in which case, you know, it's great. If the director and the playwright want their input, it's perfectly valid. And have you... I've done new plays. I've done two stop-art plays. And believe me, Tom doesn't want (laughs) your... That makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> um, what's the difference for you between doing a new play and a, a classic? Oh, that's easy. Um, the point is you don't have the weight of history when you're creating a part. Uh, um, you know, no critic can come up and say, <clears throat> Sarah Bloggs played it five years ago and she was so much better than Diana, you know. There's none of that. You are you're free to imprint whatever you wish and they cannot quibble. (laughs) And um, just getting back to the chronology, uh, after RADA, your first job, was it Caucasian Chalk Circle? Oh, that was was, uh, the final performance. Yeah. Um, I wasn't terribly good. I was, yeah, I wasn't. No, I... (laughs) With the play? The or? point is you know you're not good when you're leaving drama school when the, 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 the fav, favourite gets to play the evening performance and you get to play the matinee. I was the matinee. I did learn subsequently that the lady, I adore her, uh, <laughs> who was playing the evening, was having an affair with the principal of Rada. There you go. That must feel better in But you see, these things happen in the theatre. <laughs> they do. And it's, it's amazing that you're able to look back on certain performances, because you've done so many, to be able to say, this one I don't value as much as this other well, one. It's not a question of valuing it. It's, it's whether you were any good. I, <laughs> I don't think I was very good. But then I went into rep. Now, here's where I really want to tell you about this, because... It's, it's, there's a very famous uh, uh, writer called J.B. Priestley in England who wrote a book called Lost Empires about, Empires about lost theatres. It's, it's wonderful. If, if you're interested in history, try and get, get hold of it. It's a very, very good read as well. He wrote An Inspector Calls. Yeah. 
And um, I was an ASM playing small parts in repertory. Now, it was a new play every week. Um, and, and I was an ASM and playing small parts. And I had to run around uh, the town borrowing things for the theatre. Um, it was Chesterfield. It was a northern town, very poor. Um, I was in digs uh, with a widow and her small son. And she didn't... The lavatory was at the bottom of the garden. And there was a, a, um, an umbrella by the back door. <laughs> To get to and if I to get to the lavvy, and if I wanted a, a, a bath, which I was, you know, I, I she filled a, a, a tub in front of the fire with hot water. That was the way one was living, and an equity minimum, um, running round the town trying to find uh, uh, an aspidistra. Can I borrow an aspid? No, go away. All that was happening. Um, meanwhile, in the prop room. Ronnie Harwood, who wrote The Dresser uh -huh. and wrote the film The Pianist, which got an Oscar, he, in order to save money, was living in the prop room <laughs> with his <laughs> girlfriend. <laughs> and he'd been to university, so the director kept on asking him what plays to do, and he'd always suggest a play with a bed in it. <laughs> And I had difficulty getting into the prop room, knocking on the door. Run, can I come in? I need to get some cups and saucers. And so I'd scuttle in like a mouse to try, you know, not to disturb their domestic life. <laughs> and years later, we're both in first-class lounge, uh, uh, British Airways, and he recognizes me and comes across and he, we laugh about those old days. And he said, you know, I was sitting in this chauffeur-driven limousine car with the Oscar on my knee and Natasha, my wife, turned to me and said, it's a long way from Chesterfield. <laughs> Isn't that good? Anyway, to carry on with what I did, it was the best job in the world. I was at the bottom, but I would be prompting um, an in costume, and here would be the lighting cue board, and behind me was a panatrope, which was a, a turntable, and I had a record on it with various different sound effects, car arriving, car leaving, or there would be music uh, for the intervals and mm -hmm. things like that. And you'd turn around and put the arm down for the cue, or you'd get up actually and put it because you had to be precise because the, the, the different cues were really quite small on, on one, you know, those black records? <laughs> I thought I was the only person who remembered them. <laughs> anyway, that's... And, of course, um, I sometimes got things wrong. Um, instead of playing the Riders of Valkyries at the end of um, uh, Act One of An Agatha Christie, I played Jimmy Shand and his dancing dustman. <laughs> Didn't go down well. <laughs> um, but at the end, 
uh, or when it came time for me to do my one small whatever scene, uh, somebody would relieve me of the prompt book and, and then I'd go and play it. And then at the end, I'd put the prompt book down and there would be a rope there and I'd pull the curtain down and then take it up again for the call, up, down, up, down. And the sense of satisfaction of having put the props out, of having run the play, I can't begin to tell you how wonderful it was. And of course, nowadays, it's all, it's all, they've all got, um, it's all computerized. <laughs> and, and I'm a very confused person. <laughs> but I'm sure you had a, a great appreciation once you were on stage for all the people working the pan of vision or whatever With that, that was. Yeah, what, I mean, working the, the record player and the props and all of that. I was working them. But, but once you got on stage and you were acting... Oh, oh, no, that, that, that's true. I mean, I've got a definite affinity with, with um, stage management, definitely, because I've been there. I mean, they don't do what I did. Like, we only had one sofa, so it had to be recovered every week. And the other ASM would... This would happen on a Saturday night. You know, we'd take the set down and we'd put the other set up. And the other uh, uh, ASM, and I'm still in touch with him, he's 94, he lives in Australia, would start at the other end of, of, of the sofa, covering it with copy decks and um, a hammer and tacks and things. And imagine the mega row when we met in the middle and his pleats were um, different to my pleats. <laughs> So how long did you do that before the Avengers happened? Oh, years. I was 18, 19. The Avengers happened 25. I spent five years with the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, working my way up. I was a... a I did actually carry spears <laughs> <laughs> in um, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Hippolyta had these uh, butch women behind her. <laughs> and so I have carried a spear. And did you act with Olivier? I did. He was, he was, um, okay, I've got two stories about Olivier. <laughs> One, when I did Lady Macbeth with Anthony Hopkins. Um, Hopkins uh, was not entirely successful and left uh, rather early. Anyway, I had a run through with um, him before we opened and Sir watched it and he obviously didn't like it at all because when we'd finished it, he didn't say anything. And we all kind of sort of rather dribbled away. And, and then he suddenly beckoned me, and he was a naughty man. <laughs> and we weren't in costume. I was in jeans and a T-shirt. And I thought, oh, good, he's going to give me a note. Oh, lovely, yeah. And I just leant towards him. When he was naughty, he used to uh -uh, put his tongue under. Uh, and he said to me, you weren't wearing a brassiere during that run-through, were you, darling? And I went... <laughs> and I went, no. And he went, very disturbing. <laughs> and that is all he said about that. Anyway, years later, I worked with him um, in, in King Lear. He'd never played King Lear, but he desperately wanted to before he croaked, before he died, and he was pretty old by that time. Um, <laughs> and so he, he did it for, for, for um, the television. And I played uh, uh, Regan. 
And uh, it was heartbreak because he, although he was doing it for television, I, I, he desperately, desperately wanted to get through all those speeches without a cut, as if he was on stage. And he simply couldn't do it. And we watched him, this old lion, ah, desperately trying to get it right. And we were all willing him on. And he never, ever achieved it. And actually, to this day, I have not been able to bring myself... I've got a copy. But I haven't been able to bring myself to watch it. I couldn't. I it was, it was such, it was a tragedy was played out while we taped King Lear, another tragedy. Fascinating. Life like art. Um, yeah. Are you, and then for your first television uh, show, mm. The Avengers, what was it like to suddenly go from the stage to what became one of the greatest hits of British television? Well, yeah, that wasn't my first. I did a I did a couple of things beforehand, um, but it was my first major one, and and um, it was it was I hadn't seen it, you see, because I'm busy working. I didn't have a television, so I didn't know what I was getting into at all. And they asked me to go and audition, um, and you had to play a scene with Patrick, who was absolutely adorable, and then you had to fight um, the, the the fight. Mm, stuntman was called Ray Austin. You had to fight him, I think, with a handbag or something. I can't remember. <laughs> but by the, he, I, I, got, I got to audition, if you like, about four o'clock in the afternoon. Poor Ray had been hit about the head by these highly uh, ambitious actresses who <laughs> battered him to pieces all day <laughs> with their handbags. So I went easy on him, and I think I got the job as a result. <laughs> and how long uh, were you on The Avengers? I was only on two years. I got so tired of finding dead bodies, and you know, here we go again, and what do we say? Uh, I loved Patrick, but I wanted to move on. I knew I wanted to learn more. Uh, I wanted to experience more, and so it was two years, and then I moved. And, um, and I actually didn't move on to anything. I mean, it was quite an honourable departure. I, I didn't have a job. And w after that, what was your next major job? Oh, before that, I had a little confrontation with the management when I discovered that as a lead, working God knows what hours, I was earning less than the cameraman. And so I gave an interview saying I thought this was quite wrong. And um, nobody supported me. <laughs> I was quite by myself in that respect. And I was, um, I was actually, mm, um, they, they wrote about me as if I was a t t terribly mercenary woman. Do you know? There you go. Now see what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, in some ways, that uh, was probably the beginning there of a larger awareness. Um, yeah, what I did, it, just, it was got nothing to do, nothing to do with men, women, any of that. It's just unfair. That's all. And if anything's unfair, I'm going to say something about it. And do you find yourself to be a political person generally? Not really, no. I despise most of them. 
people or politics? <laughs> politics. Yeah. I love people. <laughs> and um, can you tell us a bit about what it's like to work here in the United States as opposed to working in England? Is there a difference in the audiences and the actors? Well, the audiences are just... Um, um, have you been seeing the show? Yes. I, I've seen it. This group is going uh, tomorrow okay. afternoon. The audiences are, are won over already. I mean, it's just glorious. You walk on stage and they go... And it's just so lovely uh, and very spoiling because we certainly wouldn't get that in England. <laughs> how, how, how do you find audiences in England? Well, they're, they're much more critical uh, uh, and less overwhelmingly uh, um, accepting of you. Yeah. It's definitely harder to get a standing ovation in England than it is here. Yeah, very say. much so. Um, and your first American uh, appearance, was it in Medea? Yes. Or? No, no, it was The Misanthrope. The Misanthrope. Yeah. And was that your first time in the States? Uh, I can't remember. Um, do you remember what it... <laughs> Senior moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I can't remember what I had for breakfast. But um, was it uh, a, a culture shock to be here? No. Uh, I'd seen movies. <laughs> <laughs> and it lived up to the movies. Yeah, it did. I loved it. I loved it. Oh, yeah, I had an American boyfriend. My first boyfriend. He was an American. And he prepared you? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> so, your American uh, castmates now... Um, I mean, you are surrounded by just a, a gorgeous group. Uh, are you still thinking about the boyfriend? <laughs> uh, how long did you rehearse for, uh, for My Fair Lady here? Oh, a long time. Yeah, Bart's very specific. He's a pointillist. He goes, you know, dip, 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 dip. Let's get all the details. So was it four weeks, five weeks? Six. Six weeks. I that's, think it was. I think it, I could be wrong. Don't quote. Still, that's quite long. I would say generally rehearsals in England run longer. They, they, you get more time uh, than we generally get here. Oh, really? Yeah. Ah, no. Um, no, I mean, when I did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, we, we had four weeks. Four weeks total? Four weeks for a three-act three play. That's short. That's short. Where did you do it? At the Almeida. Not bad. Do you know the Almeida? And we transferred. Phenomenal. To the West End. Yeah. How was that play? Because it's one of my favorites. Oh, it's a killer. But it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful play. Um, but it, it, it Who is, was your George? George was um, it, the, David Suchet. We love David Suchet. In Poirot, yeah. <laughs> he, he's, he, he was very good. Did that, um, that relationship is so toxic, the two of them, did that seep into your yes, life? Yes, it did. It does. I mean, I defy anybody to play that play and, and like your leading man. Because you, you really dislike each other by the end. It's, 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 it's nothing... It, it's there. It's astonishing. Really astonishing. How I don't believe in it. I mean, I, you know, I walk away from uh, a performance and I'm me immediately. And I've done this all my life. But suddenly I found... Um, there was a lot of bitterness there. It was it's, and it works both ways. When you, when you fall in love with someone on stage, 
do you... Never done that. Oh. <laughs> I would avoid it. <laughs> Anybody here on the cusp? <laughs> no. I think that's a beautiful way to end this conversation. Let's thank Dame Diana Wood for being here. You've been listening to the Broadway Teachers Podcast, recorded live at the Broadway Teachers Workshop, an annual program that brings theater teachers together with the Broadway community for behind-the-scenes classes, workshops, intimate discussions, and Broadway shows in New York City and online. Learn more at www.broadwayteachinggroup.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.